All right, I'm here at my house today trying to uh, cut down this tree, but if you'll just kind of look at me here, I'm, I'm a whole illustration of our passage of scripture today. Uh, what's wrong with the scene that you're looking at right now? First of all, I'm attempting to cut down a tree with a chainsaw without having started it. And then also you can see the way I'm dressed doesn't really dress for working with a chainsaw on a tree. Uh, I'm dressed in my church office clothes. So the whole point of what I'm trying to show you here is if you, if you have a great invention like this, then you need to properly use it, this chainsaw. It's not going to do anything without having started it. And our passage of scripture today, it's the beginning of kind of the practical application, the practical portion of the book of Hebrews. And the whole point here is we have all this rich theology of what Christ has done for us. Now we need to live it out. And we're going to see phrases in our passage today like holding fast to the truth and we live our lives out in community with others. So we have all these wonderful things from Jesus. We need to properly live them out and apply them in our lives uh, if, if it's going to be any good for us. And so let's, let's not try to live our Christian lives like this, right? Like this scene here, but let's live it out properly in following Christ. All right, uh, no trees were harmed in the making of that video. Just going to let you know that I did not cut the tree down. So we're going to talk about that today as we get to this part of Hebrews. We've been working through Hebrews the whole year this year. And we're going to get to this part of Hebrews that is going to begin to focus on the more practical application of the book. So we've had almost 10 full chapters of very rich, deep theology, and now we're going to get to this uh, beginning of the rest of the book that's going to pretty much tell us what do we need to do in light of that theology? How do we live it out? What is the, um, what is the difference that it makes in our lives? So I want to begin just by showing you uh, a picture of uh, this man. This is Robert Maynard. Robert Maynard was uh, a very influential journalist in the 20th century. He's passed away now. But uh, Robert Maynard tells a story in his childhood that was very influential in shaping him to become uh, a writer and a journalist. And uh, the, the story as he tells it is he, he's a boy. He's not, not a little bitty kid, but not a teenager, just kind of, I can't remember how old he was, nine, ten-year-old boy. And he's walking to school one morning, and walking to school, he encounters what is an irresistible temptation for a ten-year-old boy a fresh piece of wet cement on the sidewalks. The sidewalk had broken. They had come and repaired this little section of the sidewalk, and he comes across it, and he sees that gray, wet slab of cement, and he can't help himself. What does Robert Maynard do? He bends down, and he begins to write his name in the cement. While writing his name in the cement, all of a sudden he sees a very large shadow cast over him. He turns around real quick to see his, his description, the biggest cement worker you've ever seen in your life. And he has a trash can lid in his hand like he's ready to use it. And Maynard tries to get up and run away, and the cement worker grabs him by the shoulders and says, why are you trying to spoil my work? And shaking in his boots, very terrified, he says, uh, uh, sir, I was, just, I was just writing my name in the cement. And he said, the cement worker kind of relaxed a little bit, and he said, and what is your name? And he says, uh, my, my name is Robert Maynard. And he said, well, Robert Maynard, 
If you want people to know your name so much, why don't you quit writing in the cement, walk across that street and go into that school and work hard, make something of yourself and let the whole world know your name. And then he looked at him and said, and by the way, what do you want to do when you grow up? And 10-year-old boy wasn't really sure yet, but he, he looked at this big cement worker and he said, uh, sir, I, I, I think I want to be a writer. And he said, the cement worker, when he said that, just bellowed real loud the whole block could hear him. He says, a writer, a writer. And he thought he was about to make fun of him for wanting to be a writer. But the cement worker said, then you go into that school and you learn how to become a writer. And you become a real writer and you let your name be known in books and not in cement. And he let Maynard go and Maynard ran across the street and he ran up the steps of a school and he was just about to go in the school and he turned around and he looked back at that cement worker across the street and that man was bent over smoothing out Maynard's name out of there and the man looked up at the boy one last time and he looked at him and he yelled out, go be a writer. Robert Maynard says that incident with a stranger was incredibly influential and putting him on a path to be and do what he was meant to be and do. Uh, Robert Maynard not only became a well-known journalist who authored a lot of columns in newspapers, he also authored a number of books. And then Robert Maynard not only became just a journalist, Robert Maynard eventually became the publisher and then eventually the owner of the Oakland Tribune in Oakland, California. A very influential journal journalist last century. That's a little story about a man who encouraged another person, almost a little forcefully, to be and do what he was meant to be and do. And really, that is kind of the theme of the passage of Scripture we're going to study today. You know, the author of Hebrews, he's, he's been a little forceful with these people, right? He's kind of given them these very stern warnings, kind of like he grabbed them by the shoulders, and he's encouraging them to go out and be and do who they're meant to be and do, children of God, living out their faith in the world like Christ. So let's take our Bibles and let's turn to this text of Scripture today, Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to begin with verse 19. As I mentioned, this is kind of a, a, a turning point in the book of Hebrews because we move from this theological emphasis to a kind of more practical emphasis, how we are to live it out. And by the way, when you read verse 19, you come across a word right at the very beginning that kind of lets you know that, the word therefore. And you recall what I've taught you. Whenever you see the word therefore in the scripture, you ask, what's that therefore, therefore? And it's a transition to a different kind of line of thinking. And that's what we're having here in this passage. So let's see how he begins this more practical part of the letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
Now, however you want to term this, I, I, I basically stole a lot of different phrases from different commentaries this week. However you want to think of this, you can think of this as, as a shift from the theoretical to the practical part of Hebrews. You can think of it as a shift of explanation to application, creed to conduct, precept to practice, instruction to exhortation. Should I keep going? I think I can turn this into a rap, but I won't do that. <clears throat> but here's the thing. What do I do with 10 chapters of rich theology? What I cannot do is read 10 chapters of rich theology and then just say, oh, wow, that was very informative, that was very interesting, and then walk away an unchanged, undifferent person. Now, the reason we're given all of this theology is because of this very important, very important fact. What you believe is so important because it directly shapes what you do. Listen to me tell you this. Ideas have consequences. What you believe to be true will shape and direct how you see the world and how you act in this world. By the way, if you do not believe those statements to be true, go read a couple of books about Nazi Germany. Ideas have consequences. If you don't think those, those statements are true, go read a couple of books about Marxist Russia or go read a couple of books about Pol Pot's Russia, a, a communist Cambodia, where Pol Pot was going around and executing people just because they were wearing eyeglasses. Ideas have consequences. Why do we have so much theology in the New Testament? Why is this letter and other letters in the New Testament almost kind of evenly broken up here. You can see the line of demarcation and a shift from theology to application. Why are they telling us all this stuff, this theology? Why is it so important that we know the truth, that we know fully what Jesus has done for us? Because the truth and what Jesus has done for us is so huge because it shapes how we live. So what you've got in this passage of scripture, I think, is it's kind of two sections here, if you will. Uh, the first one is these first three verses where he just describes our confidence in God. Uh, I am about to be called in this letter to a very, very daunting task, to be set on a very, very big, huge, challenging journey, and that is to live my life in a sinful, fallen, cursed world in a way that pleases Jesus Christ. It's not going to be easy. So what we need to start with, if you look at the screen right here, is we need some confidence. Can I do this, what he's called me to do, to live for Christ in this world? And so in these first three verses, if you look right here, there's a couple of things that he reminds us of, and we won't belabor the point because we've, we've looked at these for all of these Sundays leading up to this, but the first one he reminds us of is our access to God that gives us confidence. So you see it right here in, in, in verses 19 to 20, right? We have confidence to go to, to God because Jesus has gone before us and he has gone to the holy place. And this whole idea that he has torn that veil, what separated us from God, our sin, Jesus has satisfied the wrath and the judgment that God has on our sin. Jesus has satisfied it. And now, not on any basis of what I have done, but in my faith in the person of Jesus and what he has done, I now actually have access to God. See, the challenge, the call is go out and, and live for God in this world. Well, that's hard to do if I'm terrified of God. And I should be terrified of God if my sin hasn't been dealt with. It, it, the thought of coming into the presence of God should scare me to death, 
If my sin is still on the table because I'm facing his wrath and his judgment for my sin. But if his wrath and judgment for my sin has been satisfied in the death and resurrection of Jesus, well, then I have access to him and I don't have to be afraid. And you look at the next verse in verse 21. And, and, and by, by the way, here's just a reminder from chapter 4, verse 16, of that confidence we have. Let us then approach the throne of grace. Let us then, then, because of what Jesus has done, now I can approach the throne of grace with confidence, not in terror, but confidence, so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And our time of need is certainly this journey of living for Jesus. So not only do we have access, now look at verse 21, we have this advocacy. And so in verse 21, he reminds us again that Jesus is our high priest. And so Jesus, through his death and his resurrection has satisfied the judgment of God on our sins, so we have access to him. But now you go one step further, and now when I come into the God's his presence, I have his access, Jesus is actually my advocate. And what has the writer of Hebrews told us? That Jesus is right now seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for us to God. He is advocating for us. So kind of picture it like this. If I, had, I could just have access to God, and God could look at me and say, hey, okay, the door is open, come in, stand in the corner, don't move and be quiet. That's not what I'm called to do. I'm called to come to God and live for him actively. And so I don't have to go into the room and still be terrified. I have not only access, but I have Jesus as my advocate, see. And so now, before we ever start thinking about specifically what does living for God look like, the author of Hebrews wants to remind you, by the way, you can do this. Because I'm telling you right now, I know who I am. I am broken and weak. I live in a world that is broken and fallen and cursed. And the thought of going out and obeying the scripture, living for Jesus in this world, hey, I can't do that. But I can do it. When he is the one doing it through me. And I have that because of this access and this advocacy. See, Now, last night, we were watching the Olympics. And it was men's gymnastics. You seen these guys do gymnastics? They are doing what a human body should not be able to do. Okay? I'm just telling you. They're running around and they're flying all over the place and twirling and spinning and doing all this kind of stuff. And one of the American guys was doing this floor routine last night, and after he did some of these incredible, amazing tumbling runs and passes, flipping through everything, he, he, he goes over the side of the floor, and first of all, he does the splits. Ouch. And from the splits, the man bends over, holds his arms out like this wide, and from his arms out this wide, does a handstand. And Jamie looked at me and said... <laughs> Boy, how'd you like to try that? And I said, there would be not even the trying of that. I can tell you right now. You know, we kind of watch that stuff and we kind of, we usually say stuff like, boy, boy, if I went out there and did that, I wouldn't last a second. I'm just telling you right now, I wouldn't even be out there. There wouldn't even be the second at all or the trying. Because look, if they said to me, hey, Fisher, run up there on that mat and do the splits, put your arms out wide and do and go into a handstand. I'm going to say, I'm running to the locker room. I'm not even going out there. You know why? Because I have not one shred, I have not one scintilla of confidence that I could do that. And honestly, when I look at what the scripture calls me to be and do, I have no confidence that I can do this on my own. 
But when I am positioned, identified in Jesus, and he through his Holy Spirit is doing this in and through me and empowering and enabling me to do this, now I have confidence. So I have some, Jesus, my advocate. He's not just a cheerleader over here. Rah, rah, come on. No, he is actually through the spirit of God living within me and enabling me to do this. You know, there's an old history, there's an old story from church history about uh, an early church father named Chrysostom. And uh, Chrysostom was supposedly standing before a, a Roman te- Roman Byzantine emperor, Arcadius. And Arcadius says to Chrysostom, I'm going to banish you unless you recant of your faith in, in Christianity. And, and, and supposedly, according to church history, this is what Chrysostom says to Arcadius. You cannot banish me for this world is my father's house. But I will, say to, I will slay you, said the emperor. No, you cannot, said the noble champion of the faith, for my life is hid with Christ and God. Well, I will take away your treasures, the emperor said. No, Chrysostom said, you, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. The emperor says, I will drive you away from man and you shall have no friend left. And Chrysostom replies, no, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to hurt me. How about that line? You recanted your faith in Jesus or I'll take you away from everybody you know and love. And the guy says, you just try. I have a friend, I have an advocate in heaven that you cannot separate me from. And so going into this task, this journey of living our lives for Jesus, know that we can have that kind of confidence. So the second part is then our calling, okay? Knowing I've got all this in Jesus, knowing Jesus has done all of this for me, okay, what am I exactly to do? How does this change my life? How does this impact my life? Now, look at your Bible. I want to show you something interesting in this passage of Scripture we read. Here come three Three exhortations that all begin with the phrase, let us. So you look at verse 22. Let us draw near with the true heart. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our our hope. Verse 24. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good work. So you have these three admonitions. Let us do this. Let us do this. Let us do that. So in light of all of the theology, in light of everything that Jesus has done for us, here's what we go and do. Let's go and do these things. So you look at verse 22. And the first let us that we are to do is to draw near to God. Now, when he says draw near to God, he he most likely has in mind the idea of worship or prayer. It is worship and it is prayer that keeps us connected to God, okay? Here I am, I'm being tossed into the arena in this world to live for Christ. If I ever get disconnected from the one that enables and empowers me to live for him, I'm toast. So it is worship and it is prayer that keeps us connected. Remember, even in the Ten Commandments, just those first few commandments, we're told right up straight up front, Uh, You are created to worship God, and God expects and demands you to worship him. Worship, okay, I'm I'm just going to try to talk like somebody younger than I am. You ever heard somebody say, you watch somebody and they're doing something they really love, and they say, man, that deal is their jam, you know? Like, 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 like music is the jam for a music. Running is the jam for a runner. You know, whatever it is. 
you know, worship as a Christian should be my jam. It should be where I feel at home. It should be my, that, that's, you know, my identity in him. It, it, that's, that's how it just ought to be for us. In fact, it kind of reminds me a little bit of this picture on the screen. You know, anytime you read a story where they found whales caught in the ice, there's, there's only one or two ways they help the whales. The first way is they try to call the Russians to bring in the ice-breaking ship and get them out of there. And if that, what do they do? They, they, they chainsaw these holes in the ice. And then they, they chainsaw a hole in the ice, and then about 15 yards from that one, they chainsaw another hole, and then about 15 yards from that one, they chainsaw another hole. And what are they doing? All of these holes are leading to open water. And the whale comes up and takes a breath, and then they try to coax those whales, come on over here and take a breath out of this one, and then come over here. And what are they doing? They're trying to lead these things to open water. The whale trapped in ice who gets this respite of the hole get a breath to me it's kind of a picture of worship the world I live in can crush and suffocate me trying to live for Jesus and when I come on my knees to the throne of grace and prayer when I come and I worship the Lord it gives me this breath it gives me this respite it gives me this connection now I want you to look at this phrase with me in this part that we're looking at right here look at this so he says in verse 22, let us draw near, and he, a true heart, I'm going to get that one in a second, but look at this phrase, I draw near with a full assurance of faith. Now what does he mean when he says a full assurance of faith? Assurance. And remember, we've already learned, we've already talked about this. Every single one of us in the room today, we're worshiping someone or something. We are giving our lives to someone or something. There is someone, something, some ideology that is, that is driving your worldview. There, there's something out there that shapes how you think about things, how you see the world, how you treat people, how you think, how you talk, how you spend your resources. There's something that drives that. Every single one of us in the room, we're giving our lives to someone or something. We're worshiping someone or something. And the author of Hebrews says, when you come to faith in Christ, you can do so with full assurance, meaning you have chosen wisely. In fact, you haven't just chosen wisely as a good one among many. No, this is the only way for you to live your life. This is the only way for you to be saved and right with God. The only way for you to have access and forgiveness is by following Jesus Christ in faith. And when you do that, you can have all the confidence in the world you've made the right choice. You followed the right path. You've made the right commitment. Now, for them, for the Hebrews in context, you see how that works. Here's a bunch of people that were Jews that converted to Christianity. When they convert to Christianity, they lose all their fam family and friends and social life, and then the Romans start killing them for it. And these people right here are scratching their head going, you know, did we make the right commitment here? Because it was a lot easier following Judaism. We had family and friends and social life, and we weren't being persecuted for it. And the author of Hebrews is reminding them, no, 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 you, you made the right choice. You've made the right commitment. And, and listen to me. Look at me. I'll tell you something. If you commit your life to follow Jesus, I can tell you right now, that will not be the easiest of the things you could have committed to. There's a whole lot of things over here that are easier but they cannot save you. Following Jesus isn't easy, but following Jesus is the right and only way.
You ever been to the grocery store before? And you get ready to go check out? And you, you, there's four cash registers? And there's people in line at every one of the registers? And you get to play the game? Let's pick the fastest line. Can I get an amen or a no me from you on that, right? All right, we're going to pick out which one's the fastest line. And if you're like me, this happens like eight out of ten times. You pick the worst one. You, you study that, it's like, oh, that person looks slow up there. You know, they're not going to, you know, this is shorter. I'm going to get in this line. And you, as soon as you get in this line, the other three lines go, shoom. And you're like standing there. And you're like, I knew it. I always pick the... When you follow Jesus, none of that is in play. And by the way, you got all these competing worldviews pulling at you. You got, this, you got this person or this thing and this ideology over here. Come on, this is the best way to go. This is the best way to give your life. That'll make you feel the best way. This is the way that everybody thinks is the right way. Come on and do this. You, you, you got all these choices ahead of you. But following Jesus is really the only way. And look at this other phrase. By the way, there's a heart sprinkled clean and, and, and bodies washed with pure water. All about, I can do this because I've been saved. My, my, the blood of Jesus has cleansed me like we've been talking about up to this point. But just because of time, I want to look at this one other phrase with you. Look when he says right here. You do all of this, look, with a true or a sincere heart. See it right there at the beginning of verse 22? I draw near with a true or sincere heart. The word, the idea there means undivided, okay? If you're, going, if you're going to follow Jesus and you're going to commit to following him in faith and obedience, watch. You got to do it with all your heart. Now look at me. There's too many of us today and we think following Jesus looks like this. I really want the most of me to still be over here in the realm of me being Lord and following this thing. And but I, I'm going to try to put a toe over here in Jesus. You cannot come at this divided. Listen, page after page after page in the scripture presents to us following Jesus not as a both and construct. Oh, I can have both Jesus and myself in the world. It always presents following Jesus as an either-or construct. You're either going to follow him or you're not. There's none of this. Now, I'll make a little confession to you this morning. I'm going to tell you something my wife did to me the first few years of our marriage. It took me like three years to figure out she's doing this, okay? Now, you're not going to believe that she would do this to me. But here's what she would do, okay? Whenever we would go out to eat, and the waitress, the hostess, host would, would show us our table, and if the restaurant had a TV or TVs in it, guess what my wife would do? My wife would always choose the side of the table where my back had to be to the TV. <laughs> Can you believe the gall of her for doing that? And she would make me sit with my back to the, I'm looking, oh, there she is right there. I'm looking to see if I'm getting the stink eye. Not yet. <clears throat> Story's not over, babe. Uh, <laughs> and she would make me sit with my back to the TV. You know, I'm like, she wanted me to have to talk to her instead of watching TV. So we'd sit down and it started, you know, hey, and, and this is how, this is how it'd go. And we'd start talking and it was, <laughs> 
And I'd get in trouble for that. <laughs> What's really sad is it took me like three years to figure out she's doing that. This, what I just showed for you, cannot be Christianity for you. It cannot be, oh, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to follow your truth. And, uh, hey, uh, oh, what? A true, a sincere heart means I'm locked in. All or nothing. Not, not both or and. That's what we're called to do. Now, look at this next thing right here. Okay? Check this out. The second let us is this, that we hold fast to the truth, the confession. We hold fast to our confession. Now, what he's talking about is the truth. He's talking about the word of God. He's talking about scripture. Now, y'all, listen to this. We, we, we cling to the word, right? How, how is it that I know that my, 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 my faith in Jesus is well-founded, I can do that with full assurance? And he tells you right here, because we're following the truth, all these other worldviews over here say, hey, we're what's true, we're what's true. No, really, Jesus is the truth and the way and the life. Now, listen, I found this. William Marston was a, a professor at NYU, New York University. Okay, watch this. This is, this is amazing. He goes out on the streets of New York City and he asks 3,000 New Yorkers one question. And the one question is, what do you have to live for? That's it. And he said 94% of 3,000 people basically said, uh, I'm just trying to suffer through today for the hope of maybe something better later. How sad. Here's, here's some of the top responses out of 3,000 people to the question, what do you have to live for? Here's some of the most frequent answers. Listen to this. Many people say, well, what I have to live for is something to happen. Some people said, what I have to live for is next year. Some said, I'm waiting for a better time. Some said, I'm living for tomorrow. And then most tragic of all, listen to this, a number of people said this one. They said, I am, I am living for, well, I'm waiting for someone to die. Meaning I'm in a ball and chain marriage or something. Friends, there, there's no hope in any of that. But look what he says. We hold fast to the confession, what? That is our hope. And when he says hope right here, he doesn't mean like wishful thinking, like I hope it's not 110 degrees today. I got news for you. It's going to be that hot. Uh, it's not like I hope that you know, people remember my birthday or I hope I have a good day at work tomorrow. It's not wishful thinking. It's this hope, like this, this, this anchor that is sure, that is secure for us. Look, this is a theme in Hebrews. Look at the screen with me. You know, in 3.6, he, he kind of repeats, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. In 3.14, we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. 4.14, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So here it all is, and you believe all of that, and you get to this verse that we're studying here in verse 23, and he says, he who promised is faithful. So you're well-founded. Have all assurance that in following Jesus, you are doing the right thing because you are following what is true. Now, friends, let's just take, can we take just two seconds to talk about this for a second? See, this is truth 
that defines who we are. When, when you say, hey, what are you living for? What you're really kind of striking at is, 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 is some big, the big questions of life. How did I get here? Did I get here by God? Did he create me or something else create me? Or did I get here by evolution? Or did I get here by Martians? How did I get here? And now that I'm here, what am I supposed to do? What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? And when I die, is there going to be something waiting for me after I die? And I'm telling you right now, friends, we have all of these theories and all these social constructs that are trying to answer this question of what is your identity? And you have all this stuff, and I'm telling you, all these theories and all these social constructs that are going on right now, I'm just telling you, they're all created by sinful people, by sinners. We're all sinners. And there is no man-made social theory or construct that's ever really going to answer the questions that we just posed. And I'll tell you another thing about all these social theories and constructs. They're wavering, they fade, and what they usually do When you turn to something outside of the scripture to try to answer the question, what is my identity? Who am am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? You know what? These theories, they usually end up only confusing people and disappointing people. And 10 years from now, they'll be on to the next theory. And five years after that, it'll be the next one. But listen to me tell you, the gospel of Jesus Christ never changes. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we really truly believe it and really truly follow it, will solve these problems. And it answers our identity. And I'm telling you right now, you look at all these theories and contracts and say, well, well, over here in, in America, we look at it this way. And in Africa, we look at it this way. And in Europe, we kind of look at it this way. I'm telling you right now, the gospel of Jesus Christ is true and good and right for all people in all places, in all times, and all cultures. That's the gospel. It's the anchor that we put our life on. I'm not a sailor. Uh, I, I, you know, I, if, if you told me to go out and sail a boat, it'd be like me trying to do a handstand like this, right? I'd crash it into the ground. But I did a little research. You know, even today, you don't go out in even these big ships without an anchor. Because you're out on the boat. There, there's going to come some crisis. There's going to come some issue and, and you're going to lose faith in the captain. You're going to lose faith in the crew. You're going to lose faith in the equipment. You're going to lose faith in the technology. And the one thing that they all can have faith in is a big old giant heavy anchor dropped in there and holding. Sometimes it comes down to that anchor to keep you alive. And I'm just telling you, when we, as he says, hold fast to your confession, don't hold fast to these theories that are always changing and disappointing and confusing. But hold fast to the word of God and to the gospel. It's what defines us and it's what we live. Just what we already said. What I believe is so important. And I cannot, I cannot just say, it doesn't matter what you believe. It's just so long as we all get along and are at peace with each other. No, because what I believe impacts who I am, what I do. And the last thing, just quickly, there's this third let us. It's verses 24 and 25. Look, it says, he says, let us stir up to, each, to love each other. And we live, we do this in, in loving community. Now, watch me here. 
I'm called to this journey. I'm called to this task to live for Jesus. One, I cannot do it by myself. And that means I can't do it apart from Jesus. And I can't do it apart from his truth. And it also means I can't do it apart from other people. I am not created to be an island. I cannot launch into this journey of following Jesus and think I don't need other people. I don't need other followers of Jesus to encourage me and give me accountability. Look at the verbs in verse 24 and 25. Consider. Basically, life is not about you. A follower of Jesus is going to be thinking about other people. Stir up, generally a negative term. That's the same phrase used to Paul and Barnabas when they fought with one another. But how can I encourage people by what I do to actually help other people? And then you see that word, we're called to encourage one another. Now, y'all, look at verse 25. Look at it. Not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Can I give you verse 25 in an Oklahoma-ease paraphrase? Are y'all ready for it? Here is verse 25 in an Oklahoma paraphrase. Y'all go to church. That's what it is. Go to church, y'all. We need one another. We need to be in corporate worship with one another. We need to be in Bible study and small group with one another. We need the church. And so do you see what he's doing here? Hey, before we launch into this journey of following Jesus, remember you can't do it without him, and you can't do it without his truth, and you can't do it without each other. Now, as a pastor, I invite people to church. I like to ask people to come to church. And now I still get it today. Oh, well, I, I, can't, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I get that one from time to time. Y'all ever hear that one before? I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And every time I hear that one, I always lovingly respond, uh, yes, technically true, but uh, I don't have to go home to be married either. Do I? Yeah, technically, I guess you don't have to go to church to be a Christian if you think of going to church in terms of earning your way to salvation. But listen, I can be married and never go home. But if I'm married and never go home, guess what? I don't have a relationship. I get this one. This one's even more prevalent today, especially in our younger generation. I love Jesus. I just can't stand the church. And when I hear that one, I always just lovingly look at the person and say, you know, just imagine if I looked at you and said, I love you, man. You are my best friend. I love everything about you, but I hate your wife. I don't think he and I are going to be friends anymore if I said that. But when you look at Jesus and say, Jesus, I love you. I just can't stand the church. You're basically looking at Jesus and saying, I hate your wife. Because what does the Bible say about the church? We are his bride. We're imperfect but we need each other. This week I went to the home of a family in our church. And the husband, the dad of this family, is battling cancer. Uh, Because of his health condition, he is unable to attend church in person. But he watches online. And we're sitting there in his living room, and he said, Brother Todd, you know, I watch you every Sunday. But he says, it's just not the same. And he looked at me and he said this, listen. He said, you know, it's really hard to do church from the sofa. And we'll tell you something. Way too many of us today think that church is about consumerism. I'll go to that church and they sing the songs I want and the way I want and the preacher says what I want him to and the way I want him to and they do this and they do that. You know what? The church isn't about consumerism. The church is about contributing. That's what it is. And it's hard to contribute to the body of Christ sitting by yourself on the sofa, just as this man said. 
So friends, we're about to launch in this journey in Hebrews of how do I apply all this rich theology and live for Jesus in this world. Can't do it without Jesus. Can't do it without his truth. Can't do it without other people. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this passage. Great, rich passage. Thank you for the reminder today, Lord, that what we believe matters. And you have not called us just to be informed, but you have called us to be transformed in the way that we live our lives. And how important this is, Father, as we just read at the end of our passage, the day is coming. It's drawing near when you will return. We need to be ready. We need to be obeying you. And so, Father, help us to know what we believe matters, and so we need to believe your truth and anchored in you and anchored in your word. And even though we live in a world that is fallen and cursed by sin, Father, thank you that through our faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross for us, we can have access to you, we can have forgiveness and redemption. And Lord, that gives us the confidence to go and live for you in this world. Father, I pray that we would not be people that read your truth and then are unchanged, but transformed. And so, Father, may we die to self today. Would you just completely overhaul our thinking if need be, where we are genuinely, truly living for you fully with true heart, not with just one toe in the water. And so, Father, speak to anyone today who has not made the commitment to follow you as their Lord. Speak to them and show them their need to turn from anything or ideology or person that's going to end up leaving them empty, but to turn and follow you in repentance and faith. And remind all of us, God, of these rich truths that we've learned today as we embark on this journey of following you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.